Amen. Let's pray. Father, you are worthy to be praised, and we do that this morning, especially in light of the greatness of our sin and the depths and riches of your forgiveness. Lord, would you help us to understand, to comprehend something of the greatness of this forgiveness this morning, and Lord, we pray that you would do so for your name's sake and for our good. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Is this really loud? It feels loud. Does this sound okay to you guys? Okay, good. Well, it is good to see all of you this morning. Uh, We will begin, uh, actually we're picking right back up in our study of the depth and riches of God's forgiveness. You remember that uh, what we're wanting to do, is there, this, there feels like an echo, Wendell. It's really strange. Maybe not from that point of view, but it is from this point of view. That feels better. Okay, thank you, brother. Okay, let's just start over. Good to see all of you. Glad you're here. So, uh, Pastor Jason and I began a, a series a few weeks ago now. We've had an Easter breakfast and a baptism in between that series um, on the depth and riches of God's forgiveness. The depth and riches of God's forgiveness. And our objective really is to take some time to think about vertical forgiveness. That's God's forgiveness of us. And we want to do that from various angles in order to try to get our arms around something of the greatness of what it means for you and I to say, we have been forgiven. If we're not careful, uh, we can use religious words uh, just with no thought, and they become empty, hollow shells. We can say grace and faith and mercy and uh, forgiveness, but it's just words. They have no substance. So it's good for us to take time to think about what forgiveness actually is. And so that's what we wanted to do. So we're just turning the diamond of God's forgiveness here and there and seeing different facets, different aspects of God's forgiveness of us. And so in the first lesson, Jason looked at God's forgiveness and our curse. And the second lesson, a few weeks ago, we looked at God's forgiveness and our guilt. And if you missed either one of those lessons, they're online. And so I'd encourage you to listen to those if you want to get caught up. But this morning, we're back on the series, and we're looking at another facet of God's forgiveness. And as you see on your handout, the lesson is titled, God's Forgiveness and Our Enslavement to Sin. God's Forgiveness and Our Enslavement to Sin. The question of human sinfulness has been debated since the fall. And despite uh, the proliferation of human sin and injustices and atrocities across the globe, the world continues to argue for humanity's inherent goodness. And if you uh, are not aware of that, just Google, is man basically good? I did that, and I found a couple of, of almost laughable articles Um, And I want to share a couple of them with you. Uh, The first one that I came across was from the Scientific American. I'll just share you the title. It says this. 
Scientists probe human nature and discover that we are all good after all. That's the scientific American. There was another article that CNN published in 2018, and this is the title. Breaking news alert. People are inherently good and nonviolent. That's a real article. 2018. I don't know if they would publish that in 2021, um, but it's a real article. And if, if you were to read these articles, you would find, if you were interested in doing such a thing, uh, you would find that these are not satirical. Right? These people that have written these articles are sincere, and they honestly believe that the basic orientation of humanity is good. And it's, it's shocking to read it, uh, especially when we think about what has happened in the United States, at least over the past year. Uh, you would think that the world at large would begin to question uh, this basic posture of that humanity is essentially good. Especially, it seems like the news media, social media, there's this 24-7, uh, basically lab results of looking at humanity. And it's that we are not inherently good. When you see cities being burned down, you see uh, genocide, you see wars, nuclear arms races, abortion, all of these things you would think would, would start to at least tip the scales towards the fact that man is not basically good, but it, it hasn't done that. Uh, just like Adam and Eve, our race is still in the practice of denying our own sinfulness. We've been doing it for a long time, and we've gotten pretty good at it. Uh, but from reading some of these articles, uh, you would think we were a little better than we are at it. Um, let me just give you one more example. Uh, one article that I, I thought was especially laughable was titled, Nine Reasons Why Humans Are Inherently Good. And the author writes this, Sometimes we all need a good reminder that no matter what is going on in the world, that's, you know, no matter what the actual evidence is, uh, no matter what is going on in the world, humans are inherently good. According to these science-backed facts, our species is pretty great. I'm not going to read all nine, but I'll read a few. Here are a few of them. First, we are naturally giving. Okay? We naturally help each other. We are resilient. I don't know what that has to do with goodness, but apparently it has something to do with goodness. The last two, though, are the most uh, irrefutable of all. And here they are. Number six. This is real. This is really from the article. Number six. Irrefutable scientific evidence that we are basically good. Number six. We love to hug each other. And, and number seven, smiling is a basic human instinct. And here's the, uh, let me give you the, the data that backs up number seven. During the 2004 Summer Paralympic Games, researchers discovered that blind athletes changed their facial express, expressions uh, in given contexts in the same way that non-vision impaired athletes changed their facial, facial expressions. 
Because the blind can't rely on visual cues, the findings suggest that no one learns the expression, we are born knowing how to smile. Case closed. Humanity is fundamentally good. This is a legitimate article, and uh, if you, you can just Google it if you want to read it. Nine reasons humanity is inherently good. Uh, but it's all laughable because we know better than this, right? Uh, one of the articles was really funny that it, it used children as an example to argue that we're basically good. And I thought, this is someone who does not have children. <laughs> but the fact is, we know this, we know better than this because we know the Lord. We know His Word. And additionally, we will never know or come to know the depth and riches of God's forgiveness unless we come to terms with our own sinfulness. So to, de- to live in this denial of sinfulness is to cut yourself off from the knowledge of the depth and riches of God's forgiveness. And Jesus said, I have not come to call the righteous, but who? Sinners. The greater that you see your sin, the greater that you will enjoy your forgiveness. That's true. So what I want us to do this morning is to think about sin. Right? And then the next hour we'll think about God's wrath. So this is just going to be a really lighthearted day. Now I want us to think about sin. And specifically I want us to think about our enslavement to sin. And then I want us to look at what God has done to defeat that particular aspect of sin. So you'll see in our outline, we'll go through four different points. The first is the nature of our sin. The nature of our sin. The Bible uses a number of different words for sin. And each word emphasizes a specific aspect of sin. But fundamentally, when the Bible speaks of sin, the idea is to the idea is that of breaking God's law. Sin is the breaking of God's law. Literally, uh, the most common word in the Old Testament, even in the New Testament, uh, for sin is falling short. It means literally to fall short of a standard or to miss the mark that someone has set. Uh, when it's used theologically, we translate it as sin. But when it's used in its ordinary sense, Sometimes it's translated as mist. There's a good example of this in Judges 20, where the Gibeonite warriors were left-handed, and they were able to sling uh, stones so accurately that they could do so and hit a single hair, H-A-I-R, not hair in the rabbit sense, but a single hair. They could sling their uh, stones and hit a single hair and not sin. Or not miss is the word. And so the Bible picks up on this normal usage and helps us understand what it means to actually sin against God. It means to miss the mark. The target, the mark with God, the target is complete conformity to His law. Right? Conformity to God's law is what it means to be righteous. To be righteous is you have conformed to God's standard. You've hit the target. And Paul says, 
what? Romans 3. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've missed the mark. And we see this throughout Scripture over and over again. That man's problem is that God sets a standard. That's a good standard. right? There's nothing wrong with God's standard. The problem is with humanity. Right? We miss His mark. And we see that in Genesis 2, 15-17. Remember this story. God takes Adam, puts him in the Garden of Eden, plants a garden for him, cultivates the garden, which is fascinating that God does this. And then God begins to show him how to live in his world. And he gives him a specific command. That's the standard. That's the mark to hit. You can eat from any of the trees of this garden freely, but you cannot eat of this tree. That's the standard. That's the mark. And we know how that goes. And Paul says later, Romans 5.12, that through this one man, sin entered the world. Sin. A perpetual tendency to miss God's standard entered the world. Nehemiah 9 says it this way. But as soon as they had rest, that's the people of Israel, they did evil again before you. We could say that sin is evil. Sin is evil. Therefore, you, God, abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. When they cried, the people of Israel cried again to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you rescued them according to your compassion. Verse 29, and you admonished them. And here's what God admonishes these sinful people. You admonished them to turn back to your law. Get back on the right track. Turn back to your law. Yet, they acted arrogantly and did not listen to your commandments, but sinned against your ordinances. Law, ordinances, commandments. Sin is breaking these standards. That's what sin is. It's to break God's law. Second, Sin is rebellion against God's law. It's not as if we're just out there trying the best we could, you know, and we just, we just keep missing the mark, right? In our culture, you'd get a blue ribbon, and we would just all keep going. Um, but no, that's not the way it works. Sin is actually more than simply missing the mark. Sin is rebellion against God's law. There is an active uh, aggression of the will towards God. This language is picked up uh, from political speech. In 2 Kings, we hear this. Now Moab rebelled against Israel after the death of Ahab. The word there for rebelled is often translated sinned. They rebelled against Israel. To sin is to rebel against God. It normally implies a willful violation of a law. So it's not an accident. It's willful. And usually it's, a, it's an inferior against a superior. So from a theological perspective, then the idea of rebelling against God as sin is this. It refers to an open and brazen defiance of God by humanity. Right? So we are not inherently good That's absolutely true. 
But it's not just that we've struggled a little bit and we've missed God's standard. We have actually defied Him. And sin throughout Scripture is described as defiance of God's law. And we could multiply examples. We see this in Ezekiel 2 as well. Uh, Listen to these words from Ezekiel 2. Then he said to me, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, stand on your feet that I may speak with you. And as he spoke to me, the Spirit entered me and set me on my feet, and I heard him speaking to me. Then he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the sons of Israel, to a rebellious people. I just want you to notice how many times he says the word rebel. To a rebellious people who have rebelled against me. They have, they and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day. I am sending you to them. They are a stubborn and obstinate people. And you shall say to them, thus says the Lord God. As for them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious house, they will know that a prophet has been among them. And you, son of man, neither fear them nor fear their words. Though thistles and thorns are with you and you sit on scorpions, neither fear their words nor be dismayed by their presence, for they are a rebellious house. But you shall speak my words to them, whether they listen or not, for they are a rebellious people. Now you, son of man, listen to what I am speaking to you. Do not be rebellious like that rebellious house. (laughs) You get the point. Sin is rebellion against God. 1 John, John is emphasizing the same thing. He says in 1 John 4, Everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. Apparently, in this church, these group of churches, uh, there were people coming into the church saying that, some of them were saying, we never sin. And so John addresses that and says, if you say you have no sin, you make yourself a liar. Right? And it seems like maybe after this correction, they started to say, well, we sin, but you know, it's not, it's not like that. It's not that big of a deal. And John, in John, 1 John 1, verses 4 to 10, he repeats the word sin over and over after he has defined it as lawlessness. And this is not just a sense of missing a mark. This is rebellion. All sin is rebellion. There there is no indifference about it. It's a serious matter. It's defiance against God's law. So, sin is rebellion. Sin is breaking God's law. And sin, thirdly, is against God. Sin is against God. Genesis 13, 13. Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinners against the Lord. Every sin is against God. There is no neutrality. Every sin is against the Lord. You remember the story of Joseph in Genesis 39 when Potiphar's wife comes to him and she says, lie with me. Do you remember Joseph's response? How could I do this great evil and sin against God? 
Can you think of another example of sin being against God? I know you can. David, Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned. All right, who else had David sinned against, obviously? Bathsheba, Uriah, the nation of Israel. What about his own family? I mean, we could multiply this and see all, uh, all the people against whom David had sinned, but fundamentally he understood that his sin was against God. Judges 10.10, we see the same thing. The sons of Israel cry out to God, and they say, We have sinned against you. Psalm 41, the psalmist says, Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Remember the story of the prodigal? He's in the faraway country, and he comes to his senses, which is a wonderful line. And he starts thinking about what is he going to say? How can he get back home? Right? Okay, in my father's house, slaves usually eat better than I'm doing now. So I can come back home and I can be a slave in my father's house, right? So that's what his, his reasoning is. He says, I'll get up and I'll go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. Sin is against God. And it's only, only those who have, have been given a new heart by the Lord that are able to see that. That sin is fundamentally and ultimately against God. And remember when the prodigal returns home, the father says, yeah, I'll make you like one of my slaves. No, he doesn't say that. It, it's insulting to the father that he would come to him and, and even propose this as an option. He's he's fully pardoned and welcomed into the Father's home again. Well, sin is fundamentally against God, and it must be understood in this way. John MacArthur writes, Sin must be understood from a theocentric or God-centered standpoint. At its core, sin is a violation of the the creator-creature relationship. Man only exists because God made him. And man is in every sense obligated to serve his creator. But sin causes man to assume the role of God and to assert autonomy apart from the creator. The most all-encompassing view of sin then is to understand it, its mainspring, as the demand for autonomy. Sin is against God and it says... I want to do it my way. Leave me alone. It's a rebellion against him and fundamentally is an affront to him. Fourth, sin is universal. We are aware of that. I don't think I have to make that case, but there are some proof texts there if you want to look at those. Sin is universal. There is no one who does not sin. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Letter E, sin sin is... To not believe God. Sin is to not believe God. I have to be careful about time. There is not a uh, clock up there. Because it was off 15 minutes from last week. So. I'm going to do my best to watch time here. 
Uh, sin is, sin to sin is to disbelieve. It's to not believe God. All right, let me give you a story here. Deuteronomy 20, uh, or Deuteronomy 1. You remember, Moses is recounting the story of Israel as they had been, God had miraculously brought them out of Egypt, right? He had redeemed them, and he had brought them out of slavery and brought them into the plains of Moab where they were about to cross over and enter into the promised land, right? And this is Moses' word to them. Moses said, actually, I don't have that, but Moses said essentially this, God is going to give you this land. Be strong and courageous. This land will be yours. God is going to give it to you. Go in and enter. And you remember what the people say? We, we believe you, essentially, but why, can we send in some spies just to go check the place out first? And to see, you know, what we need to expect. And Moses says, sure, we can, you can do that. So they send out a, a search party into the land to go in and check it out. And when they come back, they brought some fruit back, remember, and they brought a good report. The land is, is actually flowing with milk and honey. Look at these grapes. This is a wonderful place. But there was another dynamic to the report. And that was this. The report said that in the land there were giants. The people are bigger and taller than us, they said. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. Really? Fortified to heaven. And besides, we saw the sons of the Anakim there. These are big people. This is a big undertaking. And so... They cowered in fear, and although God had said, go in, I'm going to give it to you, they did not believe him. And they grumbled in their tents and said, because the Lord hates us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to deliver us into the hands of the Amorites to destroy us. Where can we go? Our brothers have made our hearts to melt with this report. God says, I'm going to give you the land. The, res- the report comes back. There's no way you can take this land. What are you going to do? Are you going to take God at his word? Or are you going to cower in fear? Well, Israel took the cower in fear option. And uh, they cowardly refused to go in. And Moses actually came to them and said, don't be shocked by this. This is not taking God by surprise that there are big people and fortified cities in this, country, in this land. God knows this. Don't be shocked. Don't be afraid. The Lord your God who goes before you will himself fight on your behalf, just as he did for you in Egypt. And in the wilderness where you saw how the Lord carried you, just as a man carries his own son. God is going to take care of you. Go in and take the land. But... Verse 32 of Deuteronomy 1. For all of this, you did not trust the Lord your God. You didn't trust Him. You didn't trust the Lord your God who goes before you on your way to seek out a place for you to encamp in fire by night and cloud by day to show you the way in which you should go. And to summarize this event, 
Verse 41 says, the people say, we have sinned against the Lord. How have they sinned? They sinned in not believing God. It is a sin to not take God at his word. Right? Just, and this is just a parenthetical. What has God told us? What has God promised us as believers? Right? It is a sin for you not to take him at his word. Hebrews 3.12 Take care, brothers, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. Hebrews 11.6 Without faith, it is impossible to please him. We have to believe God. To not believe him is sin. And then at letter F, sin is alive. Sin is alive. Are you aware that sin is alive? Sin is alive. The Bible personifies sin, not in this just abstraction, but you remember the story of Cain and Abel right? in Genesis 4-7, where Cain and Abel both offer sacrifices. Cain becomes angry about God's acceptance of Abel's sacrifice. And the Lord mercifully comes to Cain and says, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. Sin is alive. Its desire is for you, but you must master it. It's, the imagery there is of a sort of lion just asleep right outside your door. Right? And you're going to open the door, and you know that this lion has one desire, and it's to kill you. Right? And it's, but it's just sleeping outside your door, and it feels safe. You know? But when you open the door, you better know that that lion is there, and you're going to wake it up, and it's going to devour you. That's what sin is. Sin is a lion that wants to devour us. Romans 6 tells us that sin not only wants to devour us, but it actually wants to lord over us and function as the king over our lives and to be a tyrant. Paul says, let not sin reign in your mortal body. Sin wants to reign over you. It wants to be your master. Romans 7 says this. Paul, rehearsing his own struggle with sin, says, Sin, taking or seizing opportunity through the commandment, produced in me coveting of every kind. Inanimate things don't seize opportunities. Right? Animate things do. Things that are alive do. Sin looks to seize opportunities to enslave you it's active and it's alive the last point here letter g is that sin is a law sin is a law so we're looking at the nature of sin sin is alive but sin is also a law romans 7 21 i find then the principle or the law that when i would do good evil lies close at hand For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man, 
But verse 23, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind in making me a prisoner of the law of sin which is in my members. The law of sin. The law of sin. All right, I want us to think about that in the next point. So we've looked at the nature of sin, what it is. That's its nature. But what about its power? Right? What does sin do to us? If it's alive, if it's animate, then it exercises some sort of power. What power is that? Well, the first thing I want us to consider is this, the power of sin as a law. The power of sin as a law. Romans 7, we just mentioned, speaks of sin as a law within us or a principle. How does sin yield power as a law? Well, it does so just as the law of God does. You remember this, when God gave uh, the people of Israel the law. The people were divided into two camps uh, in Deuteronomy 27 and 28. Uh, Half of them went to Mount Ebal and half of them went um, to Mount Gerizim. And on one side, they shouted and proclaimed the curses for disobeying the law. And on the other side, they shouted the rewards and blessings for obeying the law. So a law functions to reward and to punish. You're rewarded for obedience, you're punished for disobedience. Sin is a law in this way. Sin promises reward for abiding in it, for obeying it. And it threatens punishment if you disobey Tracking with me? Okay. So what then is the reward of sin? If Paul calls sin a law, what reward does sin dangle before us all the time? Let me give you John Owen's answer. This is what he said. The reward of sin is pleasure. By the miserable reward of pleasure, sin has kept the world under obedience. By the miserable reward of pleasure, sin has kept and keeps the world under obedience. Why else would we sin ever if there wasn't some sort of promise of pleasure? The punishment for sin is the withholding of pleasure. Don't sin and life won't be as pleasurable. We see this in the life of Moses. Hebrews 11, 24 and 26 says this way. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God rather than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. The battle for Moses was between the law of sin and the law of God. The law of sin came to Moses and offered immense pleasure. Right? Think of all the pleasures of Egypt. All the pleasures of a wealthy, secular, comfortable society. These can be, this could all be yours, Moses. 
But the writer of Hebrews tells us that Moses' calculation was to renounce all the pleasures of the law of sin in favor of the law of God. And it tells us that he was looking forward to the reward. Right? So sin comes to us and offers blessing and reward, the reward of pleasure for obedience. That's the first thing that sin does. Sin's power then as a law is that it promises pleasure. What about sin's power as a tyrant? Sin's power as a tyrant. Paul in Romans 6 speaks of sin reigning over us. What do tyrants do? Well, they enslave. John 8, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Sin's desire is to enslave. Titus 3 says that we were once disobedient, foolish, enslaved to various passions. And then Romans 6, Paul exhorts the people, do not let sin be master over you. Right? You've got to say, don't let sin master you because sin wants to master you. That's its M.O., To master and enslave. It wants to be your Lord. It comes to you and it calls to you. And it says, obey me and I will reward you with pleasure. It promises ease and comfort. Escape. And then it becomes a tyrant. And enslaves you. And rules over you with an iron fist. That's what sin does. That's the power of of sin as a tyrant. But sin is also a deceiver. Sin is a deceiver. The power of sin really lies in its deceptiveness. Right? Its deceptiveness. Hebrews 3 says, Take care, brothers, that there not be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart that causes you to fall away from the living God. Verse 13, But encourage one another daily, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The deceitfulness of sin. The word deceive means to trick, to cheat or mislead, to be duped. That's what sin does. It comes to us and it seeks to trick us. Well, how does it do that? Well, in in multiple ways. Uh, One of the ways, Proverbs 5 says that it's like a snare, right? Do any of you guys like have snares, set snares or anything like that? None of you do. That's okay. Abram and I tried to set a snare the other day. Uh, So when it snowed, so this was a couple months ago. This was pretty funny. Uh, we, We were just sitting at the house and, you know, we were inside cold and we thought, well, why don't we go outside and do something? So Abram's wanted to catch a bird. And so we thought, well, you know, the Israelites, there are Proverbs and Psalms about catching birds with snares. So let's see. So we Googled and we found a snare, uh, basically directions to build a snare. So we built this little snare. We failed utterly, by the way. We didn't make it. But the idea was, you, you know, you put bird seed all over the place and you make your little snare and there's a little trigger. That's a, it's just a little piece of, uh, it's a twig, right? And the bird thinks, oh, this is a nice little spot, right? I can come in and have some food. 
right? And it lands comfortably, just like a bird would, on the twig. And then the snare gets him. The problem with us is that our snare was just too slow. So the bird would hear all this and then fly away. But there are people that are good at snares. And the Israelites apparently were good at snares. And the Bible uses the language of a snare to talk about our sin. Proverbs 5.22 says this. His own iniquities will capture the wicked. And he will be held with the cords of his own sin. That's the language of a snare. Capture. His own sin captures him. And he will be held in the cords of his iniquities. The Bible also uses the imagery of fishing. Right? How many of you like to fish? There we go. Salt of the earth. Uh, James 1, 14 to 15. Uh, we won't read it for sake of time, but uh, it uses the language of luring and enticing. Right? You're fishing. You cover up the hook with something attractive so that the fish thinks, oh, this is nice and safe. This is an easy meal. And then you got them, if you're good. Thomas Brooks, the Puritan, said this, Satan's first device to draw the soul into sin is to present the bait and hide the hook. To present the golden cup and to hide the poison. To present the sweet, the pleasure, and the profit that may flow in upon the soul by yielding to sin. And to hide from the soul the wrath and misery that will certainly follow the committing of every sin. By this device, Satan deceived our first parents. And the serpent said unto the woman, You shall not surely die. For God does know that in the day you eat of, of this, then your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods, knowing good and evil. Brooks writes, Your eyes shall be opened, and you shall be as gods. Here is the bait, the sweet, the pleasure, the profit. Oh, but he hides the hook, the shame, the wrath, and the loss that would certainly follow. Sin always presents the bait and hides the hook. That is the deceptive power of sin. Thomas Brooks went on to say, sin, will, sin, sin is so good at deceiving us that it will deceive us into exchanging an apple for a paradise. And then he says, oh, take heed against the devil's golden baits. Right? So be alert. Sin's power lies in its deceptive abilities. And then D, sin's power as an accuser. And just to summarize this, sin, according to Romans 7, Paul says that one of the things that sin does is that it uses God's good law to arouse in us all sorts of wickedness. That's part of the evilness of sin is that it uses something good like the law of God to, to arouse in us wickedness. And then this same sin will then use that same law to condemn us. So the sin that excites and arouses our sin by the good law will then take that good law and say, now look at you, you sinner. Look at your guilt. Look what you've done. 
It's a wicked pattern. Uses the law to excite our sinful passions. And then uses the same law to condemn us. And its desire is to crush us under the weight of our guilt so that we will remain its bondservant. That's what sin does. It's wicked. It's wicked. But that's the nature and the power of sin. And we're left thinking with Paul, Romans 7.25, Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Right? Do you feel that? Well, praise be to God. (laughs) Through our Lord Jesus Christ, sin has been defeated. Sin has been definitively dealt with in Christ. And here's how it happens. First, in Jesus, the penalty of our sin has been paid. So when sin excites our uh, sinful fleshly passions, and then condemns us with that same law, it wants to use our guilt to enslave us. But Jesus came and dealt definitively with our guilt. We saw that a few weeks ago. The debt has been paid, and the penalty for sin specifically was laid upon the shoulders of Jesus Christ. It's wonderful. This is what he says. Isaiah 53. The Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to death, putting him to grief, if he would render himself as as a guilt offering. Further, he will see the sacrifice of Christ and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. Iniquity is another word for sin. Verse 12, therefore I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with transgressors, sinners. Yet he himself bore the sin of many and intercedes for the transgressors. Who does the Lord Jesus intercede for, according to Isaiah 53, 53, 12? The righteous people, the people who have no sin, the people who can look at the law and say, yes, I've got it. Listen, he bore the sin of many and intercedes for transgressors. He intercedes for transgressors. Jesus is the friend of sinners. If you are a sinner, you can have Jesus as your friend. You don't have to write articles and pretend that you're good. Right? You don't have to try to hide behind a fig leaf anymore. Because the debt has been taken care of. And Jesus is the one who bore the penalty. Romans 3, to 25 says that Jesus is the propitiation. He's the pleasing sacrifice. He's the one who satisfied the wrath of God on our behalf. The reason... Christ has to die is because we are wretched sinners. But He pays the penalty in full. Galatians 
Christ redeems us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. If you want to hear more about that, go back three weeks to Jason's study. Christ becomes a curse for us. And in so doing, He's paying the penalty for our sin. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And as much as it is appointed for man to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ, also having been offered once, to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, without reference to sin, for those who eagerly await Him. He was appointed to bear the sins of many. 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins. Do you believe that? He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin. Right? That tyrant that seeks to rule over us. Jesus died to bear our sin on the cross so that we could die to sin. And live to righteousness. And accordingly, Romans 8.1, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So when sin seeks to exert power over us by condemning us, we say, that's not going to work here. The debt has been paid. The penalty has been borne by Christ. And there is now no condemnation for me. Because I am in Christ. So Jesus pays the penalty of our sin. But he also, in his death and resurrection, he dethrones the reigning power of sin. He dethrones it. Turn with me to Romans 6. When Paul talks about sin, it's often hard to follow uh, because sometimes he personifies it and you think, this is a person. And then other times it's abstract. uh, And then other times he uses other language for sin. And so it's hard to track with him. And you think, Paul, are you talking about yourself as a believer or an unbeliever? Where are we in this process? And so there's debate about this. But in Romans 6, Paul is, is clear on the fact that he is speaking of the definitive work of Jesus and the implications that Jesus' work to defeat the power of sin has in every believer's life. And let's see if we have... All right, we have a couple of minutes. So let's, let's look at this. Romans 6, uh, we'll just jump to verse 3. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. So when Paul talks about baptism here, he's not talking about what we did last week. He's talking about union with Christ. He's talking about our union with Christ. So we have been united with Christ in a death like His, and we will also, verse 5, become united with Him in the likeness of His resurrection. So united to Him in His death and His resurrection. And then moving on to verse 6. Knowing this, 
that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. The body of sin is that fleshly remainder, right? We've been born again, we're new people, but we have sin's presence still with us. Next week, we're going to rejoice that someday uh, sin's presence will be gone. Jason's, Lord willing, going to talk about that next week. But now, sin's presence is with us. And it, it tries to exert its power over us. But Jesus says here, Paul says here, that our, our body of sin, Jesus died so that our body of sin might be done away with. And then notice the last phrase. So that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Do you see that? We would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. Let me summarize this. Jesus died to dethrone the tyrant of sin. And he died so that sin's penalty could be paid. And by virtue of your faith in being united to Jesus, you have also died to sin. Sin is no longer your master as a believer. Is it present? Yes. Don't be in denial about that. It's, it's there. But does it have authority over you as a tyrant, as a king? No, it doesn't. So Paul says in verse 11, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. And then look at verse 12. Romans 6, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its passions. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. In other words, stop living in subjection to sin and start presenting yourself as slaves of God. Verse 14, For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin shall not be master over you anymore. Sin has been dethroned. Jesus has, as it were, kicked the tyrant off the throne of your heart, and he is now there, ruling and reigning. And by faith, you're united to him in his death. And so sin, therefore, cannot exert its authority over you. Uh, you know, there is, there is this reality, though. We all know that sin is still there, still a force to be reckoned with. Um, but the point for Christians is that sin may have power, exert some influence in our lives, but it does not have ultimate authority. And G.K. Chesterton illustrates the difference between authority and power pretty well when he gives this illustration. He said, if a rhinoceros was to enter this restaurant right now. That's a great way to start an illustration. If a rhinoceros was to enter this restaurant right now, there is no denying that he would have great power here. But I should be the first to rise and assure him that he had no authority whatsoever. There's a difference between power and authority. 
Sin exerts its power and influence over us, but it has no authority. Therefore, Christians, we must never submit ourselves to the yoke of sin again. We've been set free from its bondage. Now in conclusion, sin is defeated as the tyrant. It's defeated as the one who comes and demands payment of a debt. And as such, we are liberated from our former enslavement to sin. And what, we, what are we liberated to do? Why are we set free? Well, let me give these to you really quickly. First, we are set free to be the Lord's. The Lord redeemed Israel out of Egypt so that they would belong to Him. And the same is true of us. We're set free from our enslavement to sin so that we belong to the Lord. Second, we're set free to serve the Lord. Galatians 5.13 We are called to not use our liberty, our freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love to serve one another. We serve the Lord by serving one another. We are set free to come to the Lord with our sin. We don't have to hide. right? We don't have to put fig leaves on and go hide. We can come to the Lord with our sin. Right? We don't have to hide. We can come honestly and openly with Him, knowing that the debt has been paid. We are set free to live a holy life. We are set free to now uphold God's law. And lastly, we are set free to be God's children and enjoy Him forever. Let's pray. Father, thank You for the liberty that Your forgiveness brings. Would You help us to enjoy it and live in it and bring glory to You forever. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.